We will be reading verses 1 through 13. They're looking at verses 1 through 6. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the revelation was made known to me, by, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. So as we hear your word, would you help us to understand? Would you help us to then not just know more, but be doers of the word? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was about 8 to 12 years old, I loved to read Encyclopedia Brown books. If you're not familiar with Encyclopedia Brown, he was the only child of the Idaval City Police Chief. And when his father was stumped at a, on a case, he would sit at dinner and not eat his meal. And eventually they would ask, Father, what's wrong? And he'd flip out his notebook and he'd start reading the facts of the case. And before dinner was over, Encyclopedia would have invariably solved the case. Encyclopedia didn't just solve crime for the community with the police, though. He also set up shop in his garage, and he would help locals with their cases, and he would take on the local meanie, Bugs meanie, the local bully, I should say. And the fun part was, each chapter was written so that if you paid attention and noticed the inconsistencies in people's stories or the facts, you too could solve the case, and you could flip to the back and see if you had understood it. Well, I don't read Encyclopedia Brown anymore, but I enjoy Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, and you might have your own favorite Detective Columbo, Nancy Drew, these might be some older ones, the Hardy Boys, Inspector Clouseau, Monk, many others. And we like these men and women because they're able to look at the ordinary and see clues that we missed. And you go, how did I miss that? We were looking at the same thing, but they're able to solve the mystery. And the point I want to make, though, is if you read Ephesians 3, and you think of the word mystery as I just described, you'll be sorely misled. In Ephesians 1, in, sorry, Ephesians 3, in verses 3, 4, 6, and 9, you will see comment about the mystery, how the mystery was revealed, what is the mystery, and all of this. And yet the mystery does not mean what we mean by mystery novel. It does not mean something puzzling, something inexplicable, something unexplainable, unless you're, untra unless you're trained and you're some genius detective. 
Rather, the Bible uses the term mystery just to talk about something that needs to be revealed. For example, if you read the Old Testament book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he told the wise men, you need to tell me the dream and its interpretation. And Daniel replied, Daniel 2.28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You know, they didn't know the dream, and they didn't know the explanation, but God revealed the mystery to them. So it wasn't that they had the facts and they had to go understand them and piece them together. No, it had to be revealed. And that's what mystery is talking about. You know the book of Daniel. You know Daniel didn't come to know the meaning of the dream by investigation or speculation or even examination, but rather it was revelation. And we'll see this morning, there was a mystery in the Old Testament. Not a mystery like Encyclopedia Brown, or Sherlock Holmes, but a mystery that God had revealed information, and we need the explanation of that revelation. And so Paul gave, Paul was given, I should say, the revelation and explanation, and he lives in the light of that mystery. And due to that, living in light of it, we see three things in this passage. First, verse 1, Paul is a prisoner for the mystery. Second, in 2 and 3, he's a steward of the mystery. In verses 4 through 6, he is an explainer of the mystery but first in verse one paul begins for this reason i paul a prisoner for our christ jesus however as soon as he mentions i paul he wants to pause and make sure they understand who he is and his unique role as a missionary as a minister to the gentiles because notice at chapter 3 verse 14 it begins for this reason i bow my knees Chapter 3, verse 1 is the beginning of Paul's prayer. For this reason, he's going to say why I pray, but he mentions Paul the apostle, or the prisoner, and he goes on an important rabbit trail in verses 1 through 13. And then in verse 14, he comes back to where he's wanting to get, and that is his prayer. Now, Paul wanting to give this background information is not that he's wanting to boast, hey, y'all want to know how great I am? In fact, in verse 8, he'll say, I'm the very least of all the saints. Now, that wasn't false humility, but Paul's humble awareness of his own heart and actions. The awareness that you can praise God for your gifts and talents while still recognizing your faults. The important distinction between recognizing your unworthiness versus your worthlessness. We aren't worthless, but due to our sin, we are unworthy. So Paul begins the section. He breaks off to tell these things. And the first thing he wants them to know is that in God's unique permission for him, it included him being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now you may know that there are times the Bible speaks metaphorically. He is the vine, we're the branches. We are the sheep, he is the shepherd. But Paul's not using a metaphor. He's literally in a prison with jail, in jail, with chains around his hands and feet. Keith read about this earlier for us, Acts 21 and 22, where the Jews attempted to kill Paul because they thought he brought a Gentile into the temple. And if the Roman soldiers had not rushed in, they would have beat Paul to death. And then when Paul was taken to their barracks, he asked for permission to speak, and he gave a speech. And they were fine with it. They liked what he was saying. They were willing to go along with it. They even heard him say, that due to Jesus speaking him on the road to Damascus, he was baptized and trusted in Jesus' name to wash away sins. No murmur from the crowd. They listened quietly. But then when Paul added, 
that God told him, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. It reads in Acts 22, Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing their cloaks off and flinging dust into the air. You know, once Paul makes clear to those Jews that God has a plan for Gentiles and Jews, they consider him unworthy of life. We didn't read the rest of the story, but Paul will stand trial. They will try to assassinate him in a plot at night. And so he's sent off to Caesarea where he stands on another trial before Roman leaders. And when they will not release him, he appeals to Caesar. And the New Testament ends without us telling us whether he was ever released or put to death. Though history tells us more than information. But nonetheless, Paul is writing as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now notice, Paul didn't say a prisoner due to Jewish hatred, which would have been true. He doesn't say a prisoner of Rome, a prisoner of unjust treatment, though that would also have been true. No, he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he knows that Christ rules and reigns everywhere, even whether he's in a prison cell or not. But not only is he a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but he says in verse 1, it's on behalf of you Gentiles. You know, Paul sits in that prison because as we just noted, he preaches that by faith, even Gentiles can have access to God. The Jewish crowd wasn't angry that Jesus might be the Messiah. It's that he might be the Messiah for Gentiles. And if Paul would just drop that one little phrase for the Gentiles, he could probably go free. And throughout times, Christians have been told, we have no problem with you worshiping. You just need to change one little thing. And the one little thing may change over time. It might be, well, look, you can worship Jesus. You can think he's God, but you also have to burn incense to Caesar. You also must say Caesar is Lord. Just one little phrase. What's this wrong thing with saying Caesar's Lord? What's the big deal? And yet that one little clause makes all the difference. And you can hear people saying, Paul, come on. Don't be a stick in the mud. Go with the flow. I mean, one little phrase. What's the big deal? And yet if Paul went for the, with the flow, the Jews would then be the only ones who knew of God's message. And yet 2,000 years later, we hear of God's great message of salvation because Paul was faithful to his ministry to the Gentiles. He won't go with the flow because the message he preached was not his own, but rather he's a steward of revelation given to him by God. But before we get to that, let's briefly pause because we need to note that just as Paul ended up suffering for his devotion to Christ, so may we. This is really important to realize because your expectations often determine your enjoyment of something. I'm sure you've had the experience where your friends rave and rave of some movie. It's the funniest movie ever, and they're always joking and laughing about it. So you find, okay, I'm going to go watch it. And you go, eh, it was all right. I mean, it was funny at parts. But because your expectations were funniest movie ever, you weren't that excited. Or your friends tell you of the newest, best burger in town, and they just, oh, it's juicy. The fries are hand-cut. All these things, and you go, and eh, it's a piece of patty on some bread. It's okay. Your expectations determine your enjoyment. And if you think 
coming to Christ will mean a suffering-free life, you'll be sorely disappointed. And yet Christ tells us to not be shocked that we'll suffer. Matthew 10, 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that being him calling him Satan, how much more will they malign those of the household? Or John fifteen twenty, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They may not throw us in a prison cell, but we might be called hateful, bigots, intolerant. We may not get included to outings or be given raises because of our morals and values. We may be mocked for Christ. And if we don't know that this is what Jesus told us would happen, we'll be shocked. We may wonder, well, look, are we doing something wrong? I'm trying to follow God and my life's getting worse. And yet Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4, 10, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening. This isn't strange, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So not only do we need to know that suffering for Christ is part of God's plan, but also we must realize that our message and role is not one of innovator, but steward. And that's what we see next, verses 2 through 3. Paul is a steward. He writes, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You know, steward is someone who has the responsibility for someone else's possessions. And Paul explains this really well in 1 Corinthians 4. So please flip back three books. Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5. So 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. There Paul writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of his heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So, like Ephesians, here in 1 Corinthians, Paul declares himself a steward of the mysteries of God. And as we said, a steward is like a manager over an estate, functioning in the place of the owner. In this case, the estate, so to speak, is the mysteries of God. Thus, since Paul's not the originator or owner of the gospel, he can't add to it, he can't modify it, he can't remove whatever he thinks is appropriate for his time and place, for whatever he wants it to look like. Rather, he's to guard it. He's to be one who proclaims it. And it's not just Paul who's to guard the message. And it's not just pastors today. Galatians 1.8 says that all of us are to guard the message of the gospel. And Paul adds that since he's a steward, verse, four, verse 2 of chapter 4 in Corinthians, his goal is to be trustworthy or to be faithful. The primary requirement of a steward is not growth numerically, but rather faithfulness. It's not bad to have external results, 
But that's not the ultimate standard by which God will judge. You know, God's not concerned about the big B's that churches are often concerned about. The budget, the beauty of the buildings, or the butts and the pews. God cares that we're faithful stewards for Him. Thus, a steward should realize that only the owner's judgment matters. That's what he's saying in verse 3. And so it's rather interesting. Paul says, look, it doesn't matter whether you think about me or what I think about me. And that's very interesting in verse 4. He says he doesn't even judge himself. He even says, well, I don't know that I've done anything wrong. But that doesn't lead him to then say, well, I'm completely innocent or acquitted. And Paul explains something that we really need to recapture. And that is, we're not completely objective. We don't see everything accurately ourselves, even our own hearts. Thus, even though Jiminy Cricket said it, you shouldn't let your conscience be your ultimate guide. Your conscience is not infallible, and though our culture says otherwise, your heart can lead you into wrong. In fact, our prisons are full of men and women who followed their hearts. You've probably known people who feel quite guilty when they're doing something right. And you've probably known people who feel innocent when they're doing something wrong. And thus, as 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, we don't ultimately condemn or commend ourselves, but we leave that to God, the ultimate judge who will reveal the secrets of our heart. The adults may remember back in 2002, the Winter Olympics were in Sochi. And the pairs figure skating, at least some of our houses love pairs figure skating, it ended. And the announcers knew the Canadian team had won. It was obvious. It was so clear. Until the scores were announced, and the Russian team won. And the announcers said, what? And then, over the next day and next week, there were cries of a scandal. A judge admitted lying or cheating in this thing and then backtracking it. The judge was suspended and he even... From then on, the way figure skating is judged changed. Everyone knew what it was. And yet what mattered was what the judge said. Didn't matter what the TV announcer said. Didn't matter the opinions of everyone. The judge's verdict was final. In like manner, people can tell us, you're on the wrong side of history. They can tell you, this is true, this is good, this is beautiful. But what ultimately matters is not what social media Not what your friends, not what experts, not what the elite say. What matters is what the true judge says. The judge of all God. And so returning to Ephesians chapter 3, we see that Paul is passionate about being a faithful steward because God has given him a revelation. And he, as a steward, must guard it. Well, what is this revelation he's talking about? Well, he's talking about his Damascus Road experience when he was going actually to persecute Christians and the Lord Jesus spoke to him. And since Paul's knowledge came from revelation and not investigation or speculation, he knows that it's never going to change. The revelation is not changed, so he must be a faithful steward over it. And it's not just Paul who's a steward, though. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are stewards of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that every single Christian has been gifted. Gifted not for themselves, but gifted to 
serve the body, to serve the church. Just as a body has various parts, but all parts are important. So the church has various members and all are important. You see, God has saved us not just for a personal relationship with Him, though He has saved us for that, and it's wonderful, but He's also saved us to be a part of the body of Christ, a local church where we can be served and also served. So what ways has God gifted you? How are you stewarding the gifts He has given you? How are you caring for and serving the body? Do you come merely to be given to receive? Or do you come to give and to serve? And like Paul, we must also be stewards of the message God has given us. As we go out and talk to friends and family, our charge is not to invent a great message. Rather, to share the message given to us. Our goal is to straightforwardly tell the entire message. We share the sad News, the harsh news that we're alienated from God, that there's no other way outside of Jesus and we must deny ourselves and follow God. But we also tell the wonderful news that when we do that, when we deny ourselves and trust in Christ, we're forgiven. We're made clean. We're adopted into God's family. You know, as faithful stewards, we share all parts, not just the so-called palatable parts, because we know we must be faithful to the content of the gospel message. And though God had to reveal these truths to Paul, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't need to reflect on them, to think about them and study them himself. Or to put it positively, Paul knew that he had to take this revelation and explain it. We see that in verses 4 through 6. Because of the mystery, Paul is an explainer. Notice verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now again, remember, mystery does not mean something that only the genius detective can figure out. That Paul peered long and hard over the Old Testament and dug out secret nuggets by following some numerical code or something like that. Rather, God revealed to him what it meant. And now he explains it by writing to the Ephesians. And the Ephesians will come to know the mystery of Christ by reading. A dreaded word to some people's ears. You know, spiritual insight does not come through emptying your mind in Eastern meditation. To know God is not to go sit in the woods or the beach and just look out and wonder how you'll commune with the divine. Rather, God wants us to know Him through our minds. Now, if you think historically, you'd recognize that most Christians have never had their own Bible. Until 1455 in the Gutenberg printing press, probably only your town had a few Bibles. So how would you read the Bible? Well, you would go to church and you would listen as they read it. And you would listen as it was explained. You know, for almost three quarters of the time that Christians have existed, they have not had a Bible. And yet, that doesn't mean it's not important to read personally. We now have the privilege of having personal copies, not just in hard print, but on your phones and very other, very other places. And throughout the Bible, we're told the importance of knowing God's Word. And Psalm 1 talks about the blessing of meditating on God's Word. Second, uh, Deuteronomy 17, I mean, tells of the king. And what the th- king should do first is write down 
God's law. And throughout the New Testament, believers are exhorted not only to know the Old Testament, but also to read the letters and writings of the apostles and prophets. Consider these interesting verses. Colossians 4.16, Paul writes, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. They're being charged. Look, read these letters that we are writing to you. At 1 Thessalonians 5.27, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Reading and hearing God's word is what they were to do. And what's the charge to the young pastor Timothy? 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. You know, people sometimes express a desire, sometimes a demand. You know, I believe God if he would just audibly speak to me. Well, you can audibly hear from God. Pick up your Bible and read out loud. And you'll audibly hear from God. Because God has spoken in his word. And we stand in a uniquely blessed time. For we have insights into God's word that believers before longed to know. Notice verse 5. It says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You may remember last time we looked at 2.20, where it says that the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're the ones who declared the cornerstone, Jesus, what he is, what he did. And yet now, because of their revelation, we know more than what people knew in the Old Testament. You know, this is not palatable to some people, but revelation did not come equally to all people. You know, some people were given visions, like Paul, a vision on the road to Damascus. Some people did have God literally speak to them, like Samuel lying in his bed. Some people, like Balaam, heard God through a donkey. And some of you have me. I'll let you decide which one's clear. Yet, we all have a revelation from God. We can all hear. And the amazing thing is, you know more, or have the ability to know more, than Solomon the king. You have the ability to know more than Isaiah the prophet, who wrote all the wonderful prophecies of God. You can know more about God than Aaron the high priest. They saw, they heard, they experienced many great things, but the mystery of Christ was not made known to them as it was to us. Now we need to be clear. Paul is not saying that they had no revelation of Christ before this. Because Galatians 3.8, he says that, Paul says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. They knew that the Messiah was coming. As well, they knew that God had a plan for the Gentiles. Because he promised Abraham in Genesis 12.3. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Isaiah 2.2 2 declared, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So if they knew the Messiah had to come, if they knew they were saved by faith, if they knew that the Gentiles one day would come, what was the mystery? Well, we're told in verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through 
the gospel. In other words, while the Old Testament talked of Gentiles being brought in, they always thought, well, yes, they'll be brought into the court of the Gentiles. They'll be brought in as outsiders. Yeah, they're in, but kind of that in that's not really in. And yet, Paul is making clear that the Gentiles were brought all the way in. Fellow heirs, partakers of the same house, that in Christ all have equal access. As Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So now, Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs by faith in Christ. And if fellow heirs, then we are equals. And Paul cared so much about this message that he sits in prison for it. He stewards it and he explains it. So do you know the joy of being one in Christ? You may have read C.S. Lewis's book, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And you may know, if you've read it, that there's an evil witch, and she's turned all of the animals who won't follow her into stone. And then the creator, Aslan, returns, who's a lion, and he comes, and he breathes on these animals. And as he breathes on the stone animals, they come back to life. But there's one animal who especially enjoyed what was happening. It reads, The most pleased of the restored animals was another lion. He kept running around everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but really in order to say to everyone he met, did you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. That's what I like about Aslan. No side, no standoffishness. Us lions. That meant him and me. You know, we are united in Christ for all who believe in him. And thus we are united to his people. Thus it's no longer them and us. In Christ, there is us. We are his brothers and sisters. Everyone, no matter their race, their gender, if they trust in Christ, we are one. And let me just point out two other important things we should note from this as we conclude. First, this passage really clarifies what we should do as a church. Since God's revelation has been given to us, our job is to teach it, and explain it. You know, our job is not to peer into the mysterious, as people sometimes say that. You know, I don't come and give you my impressions about God. Rather, I try to study the Bible and share as clearly as I can what it says. You may not know this, actually you probably do, but Jeremy's opinions aren't worth your time. Keith's opinions aren't worth our time. But God's word is worthy of your devotion. And throughout history, reformation and revival has come to God's people when they rededicate themselves to knowing God's word. It's interesting if you read the books Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, it's when the Israel, people of Israel come back after exile. And what do they do? Well, the priest Ezra, we read in Nehemiah 8, sets up a platform. And from the platform, he reads to them, God's word. And then after that, he explained to them what it meant. Thus, Nehemiah 8.8 8 says, They read from the book, 
from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. So the people understood the reading. Now, I won't be around forever. That's not like some subtle way to say I'm going anywhere else. Just saying, I'll die eventually or move somewhere else. Many of you will move with the military. You'll go to other places. And one day, you'll need to look for another church. What should you look for? Well, you might go, what's their music like? What kind of programs do they have? What's the lighting like? Where's the location? Those are all good things to consider. But the most foundational aspect of any church is do they convey God's word? You know, many other things are important. Many other things are wonderful to have. Yet sadly, often in our search for secondary good things, people lose the importance of the primary thing, hearing and knowing God's word. That's the type of church you should seek to attend. And let me conclude with one final application, the one you're probably nervous of. That's verse 4. You'll understand when you read. Now I know many objectives. Well, yeah, I would love to read, but I just don't have time. Let me give some practical things. Many of us are in our cars at least 15 minutes a day. I have the ESV Bible app, and I checked once, and it takes 62 hours and 42, 24 minutes to listen to the whole Bible read. That sounds like a lot, but if you only listen for 15 minutes on weekdays, you would hear the whole Bible in one year. So as you drive around, just 15 minutes on weekdays, you would hear the whole Bible in a year. Or there's 260 chapters in the New Testament. If you just committed, you know what, I'm just going to read one chapter of the New Testament a day, on a weekday, not even the weekends, you would read the entire New Testament this next year. Several years ago, I heard John Piper share something like this. If you only read 15 minutes a day, then by the end of the year, you would have read for 5,475 minutes. If you read at the average speed of an American, that would mean you could have read 20 average-sized books if you just read 20, sorry, 15 minutes a day. And there are so many other great resources available, podcasts, audiobooks, sermons. And most of us would be greatly helped if we just took advantage of what's already before you. If you come to Sunday school, to worship, or Wednesday night, then you're hearing God's word three times. A simple process would just be to go back and reflect on what you've already heard. What was said? What, how did they explain that? How did they say that should impact my life? Or you could attend a men's study or a women's study and get two or three more books a year. Yet the most challenging aspect is that often the issue is not that we don't have time, but that we don't make time. As Americans, we find plenty of time for social media, for YouTube, for television and games. In fact, we average almost four hours a day on those things. And while those things are enjoyable, I engage in them myself, those are wonderful pleasures like cotton candy. Dive into the steak of life. Savor the deep rich by chewing on the meat of God and his word. And to focus on that, let's end. We'll just read Psalm 19, 7 through 11. So turn there and that is where we will conclude. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. 
Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm where the first part depicts God's revelation to us in nature. And then, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 19, Psalm says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now we clearly hear the law of the Lord is referring to God's word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the hunting home. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. It is a great reward to diving into God. Using your mind, whether that's reading the Bible, listening to the Bible, reading good books or listening to good books, listening to sermons, whatever, may we delight in the mysteries of God and knowing God and use our minds in 2023. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what an amazing privilege that before us we have your word. Lord, people have longed to hear from you and we have the privilege of having heard. So would we delight in it? Lord, may we not just want to check boxes. May we find joy in you. Lord, we thank you that you have made us one in Christ, that you've made a way for us to come before you in your throne through the blood of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.